0: Good to be gathering with you all again this morning. I've been really enjoying our Advent series, this thing that we do every year. And this week, we're sort of coming to a close. It's our last Sunday of Advent. It's our last Sunday gathering this year. Obviously, we have a final Advent moment on Christmas Day itself. But as we've done all through this series, we've been looking at the themes of Advent through the eyes of Isaiah. And so we're going to open up Isaiah again. If you'd like to follow it along, I'll be reading from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 12. So feel free to open up your Bibles, open up your phones, or just listen along as you feel comfortable. Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 12. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? I know we say this after every Bible reading, but it's just such a beautiful passage, isn't it? This beautiful passage of comfort, one that speaks of hope, peace, joy, these themes that we've been discussing throughout Advent. And the context of this passage is at this turning point in Isaiah. It's written to the nation of Israel immediately after Jerusalem has been taken. They've been back into exile. And as they're in exile, there are people who have become disconnected from their land, who feel disconnected from their God, disconnected from one another. They're very much in the wilderness. There are people who are lost, who have paid a great price for their sin. Once again, Israel finds itself waiting to be restored. And God here gives them a promise. God here reminds them of his promises. Yahweh reminds his people of his character. Because God is a God of covenant, a God of love, a God who cannot, by his nature, forget his people. So Israel is told, you are not forgotten. God has heard your cries, and he reminds them of his promises. That he loves them. He will restore them once again. Restoration is coming. The wilderness is not forever. There's that great promise in verse 8. The word of the Lord endures forever. And you can imagine for a people in exile, a people who are lost, a people who have just seen their city taken from them, that this passage must be so encouraging. It goes from high point to high point, from promise to promise. There's these images of hope. There's all these verses that belong on Christian fridge magnets and Christmas cards this year. And it's tempting when we hear promises like this, verse after verse, to start skipping to the end, fast-forwarding to what we interpret how God might fulfill these promises, how he might go about it. That when God says he's going to raise every valley, make every mountain low, he's going to level the rough ground. That God is going to undo the destruction of Jerusalem. That maybe he's going to take it back as forcefully as it was wrenched away. That maybe God's going to do this by destroying the Babylonians. Maybe God's glory might be revealed in a warrior king. And it looks like that's going to happen as we continue reading through the passage. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. If I try putting myself in the Israelite sandals, that's a pretty exciting image. Recompense is coming. The God I'd be longing for is the one of vengeance, the one who can come and take my home that's been snatched away, who can help my people. Maybe sometimes this is also the God... We're looking for: the God who can eviscerate our enemies, who can fight our battles for us, the all-powerful God who can do what it is that we want, what we need. And if this is what our hope is in, if this is what their hope was in, the next image is, is a pretty disappointing one. Because what does the all-powerful one with the mighty hand look like? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms carries them close to his heart, he gently leads those that have young. Not quite this image of the warrior king that we might have been waiting for, might have been hoping for, but as God always does, he reveals himself in a manner that is unexpected, a way that is countercultural, in a way that isn't how I would have done it, isn't how you probably would have done it, isn't how they would have done it. But God reveals himself in a way that demonstrates his amazing love. The all-powerful one who could do whatever he wants reveals himself to be a shepherd who will restore people by gathering them into his arms rather than simply by fighting their battles for them. Despite their suffering, despite their sin, God turns to his people and says, I hear your cries. I carry you close to my heart. What an amazing picture of love. When we bear God's image in the world today, is the shepherd the image we think of? I have been mean, thinking the last few weeks about what we mean by evangelism and sharing the good news, sharing the gospel, and sometimes when I've tried to do that, I've tried to almost beat people into submission with my arguments, have better arguments than them, be able to counter them, be able to prove to them that they're wrong, maybe teach a turn or burn message beat them into submission, and then wonder why they're not interested in the good news. Maybe we use the power and might we have to try and convince people of the gospel. But when we look at the shepherd, do we try and follow his example? Do we look at the world and seek to gather them into the arms of the shepherd king? Are we holding those who are in the wilderness close to our hearts? Are we gently seeking to lead those who are lost? I'm convinced the hope of the world is in this sort of love. A love that is so counter to anything anyone could have predicted, invented, come up with, expected. We've mentioned throughout this series that these words of Isaiah are incredible because they point to what is going on in the context. They clearly have something to say to Israel. They clearly are saying something of Jerusalem and the temple. But they're also prophetic in that they paint a picture of the things that are to come. They speak to us in our context now. Reading the Gospels that John the Baptist himself interpreted these words as describing his role. He saw the world. and John the Baptist recognized it was a wilderness. But he also knew God's mighty arm was on its way, and this time, God's mighty arm was coming in a way that was final. The Messiah was coming. The one who was going to save God's people was on the way. The one who was going to restore all of creation. And once again, God's people waited for a warrior. God's people had found themselves in the wilderness time and time again, and again they were waiting in the wilderness, waiting for someone who could overturn an empire. This time, the Roman Empire. And of course, as they waited, the Messiah came, the warrior king never appeared. Perhaps the most surprising thing throughout the Bible is that God's people are constantly surprised that things don't go the way they expect. It's easy to look on and laugh, but isn't that also what happens to us? God never really seems to act how we expect Him to, He constantly surprises us. God's people await the Messiah, await the dawn of a new kingdom. And what comes along? A baby. The God of the universe takes on flesh and becomes a baby, born in a manger, within a stable, days, months, years later, having to flee as a refugee. The God with the mighty arm appears helpless to all of humanity. The Advent story is this ultimate image of absurdity. It makes no sense. I've been discussing with friends and family in recent weeks about how having our firstborn James this year has kind of changed a bit of my perspective on the Christmas story. There's a few really practical examples. I'm not sure if if you've ever had this, but sometimes people say a word so much that it gets to a point where it's awkward to ask what they mean by it, or what that term means. This Christmas is the first Christmas I confidently know what swaddling cloths are. (laughs) But there's more important ways that having James in our world has reshaped the Christmas story for me. So I've become fully aware just how dependent Just how unable to fight for themselves, just how reliant on others a baby is. And yet this is how the Almighty God, this is how the King chose to come. As a baby with no neck control, who dirtied nappies, had an upset stomach, had to develop the ability to use their hands, had to learn that they even had hands, had to learn how to hold their neck up, had to learn to respond to others. And I knew these things at a theoretical level, but looking at James, looking at all the babies we have in the back, so absurd that God chose to come like that. We read Isaiah's words this morning, Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. As we read in John, the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a person. God took on a humanness that can wither like glass 30 odd years later did wither on a cross why did God take on this helplessness why did he choose to come as a baby I think it's because of our final advent theme I don't want to argue it's the defining advent theme love God doesn't just demonstrate love this isn't just the ultimate act of love God is love When we see the baby in the manger, we see love incarnate. We don't get to say how loving that act it is because it is love in human form. Suddenly we can define love by comparing it to the God of the universe because he was in front of humanity. If we want to know what love looks like, we can look at a person. We can look at Jesus. God came. Love came. But not as anyone expected it. He came to Mary and Joseph, this no-name couple from a no-name town. He came in a stable, cast off to the side. He was revealed first to this woman, Mary, with very little status. He was revealed to shepherds and wise men from far away, not to the religious figures or political leaders we might have expected. He came in danger, having to flee for his life. In fact, he couldn't flee for his own life. He relied on his parents to flee for his life for him. This baby grows. There's a lot we don't hear about in his childhood. A lot of questions I'd like to ask. Was Jesus a child that had colic? How often was he waking his parents? What sort of schooling did he engage with? What sort of a kid was he? We don't hear much of this, but we know that this child, this baby, grows to be the shepherd for the world. This baby grows and demonstrates love with his very existence, his very being. This baby becomes a shepherd who didn't take the Roman Empire with a sword. Becomes a shepherd who dined with the unlovable, healed the outcasts, stood in between the adulteress and her accusers, washed feet, told the little children to come to him, healed the ear of the guard who came to imprison him and forgave the criminal beside him as he submitted to execution. These aren't the things the God of the universe is supposed to do. Not in my book. Not in the Messiah story I would have written. Not in the Messiah story that they were waiting for. And don't get me wrong, it's easy to paint a picture of a meek and mild shepherd. The king also flipped some tables, said, Get behind me, Satan. I think it's important to note the context in which that happened. It happened to those who were claiming to be insiders, it's happened to the religious leaders. He could be strong. He could be harsh. But this wasn't to those who were sheep recognizing they needed to be herded. It wasn't to those who were seeking the good shepherd. It wasn't to those in the wilderness. And so the God of the universe comes with the mighty hand and acts as a shepherd. And why did he do these things? I would argue it's because of the ultimate fridge magnet verse. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. and I've heard this verse, I think I've always connected it to Easter, that God gave himself on a cross. God gave up his life. This verse is true, if not more so, for Advent. God so loved the world that he gave himself to it. That he came as a human. That he came not as an overlord, not as a warrior. He came as a shepherd. Jesus' didn't, love didn't suddenly start in his formal preaching, what might be called his formal ministry in his 30s. Jesus' love started as a baby. This is our picture of love. Love was wrapped in swaddling cloth. I now know that's the correct usage. Love was laid in a manger. Love was given to the world as he laid himself down in the ultimate act of Humility. God's promise in Isaiah is fulfilled once again as God's people are brought comfort. As God's people have their sins paid for, have the valleys raised up and the mountains lowered, as the glory of the Lord comes revealed in a babe. We live in light of the fact that love came, that love still chooses to reside within us. We live as sheep of the good shepherd, followers of the baby king, who laid himself down. To hope leads us to ask, what king are we putting our hope in this Christmas? Isn't Christmas and New Year's this interesting time? Kalissa alluded to it before, that for some of us this will be a time of dread. Some of us will be sort of bunkering down to get through the next few weeks. Some of us have been really excited, have loved ever since Mariah Carey started appearing on radios again. Some of us are really excited But for all of us, this end of the year tends to be a time where we reflect on the year that has been and start to hope for the year that will be. And again, I ask, what king is your hope in this season? This Christmas, do you have expectations of Jesus? What he should be doing? What he should look like? We have blue Christmas here in two days. I think in many ways, that's an acknowledgement that God often doesn't look like how we want him to. That he doesn't act the way we expect him to. Are we expecting the king to use his mighty hand to do what we think he should? Because Advent is a reminder that God doesn't come in the way we expect him to. God often appears how we wouldn't expect him to. Love perhaps doesn't look exactly how we expect it to. And When we are called to love, we are called to a person, to this baby, to the king, to the Messiah who is love incarnate. And it's only through Jesus that we can know what love is. So when we seek to be disciples, when we seek to live this out in the world, when we seek to love our neighbourhoods this Christmas, are we using the baby as a guide, as an example of self-giving, of being willing to humble ourselves, of not snatching the power that might be available to us? Maybe you're like me this season. You're dragging yourself to the finish line. Maybe you're feeling exhausted, frustrated, downcast. Maybe when you hear of God's promise that the mountains will be lowered, the valleys raised up, maybe you think you know what that'll look like. Maybe you fast forward to the ending. Maybe you think that God's going to snap his fingers and everything's going to suddenly be okay. Maybe he will. But usually it doesn't look like how we want it to. What we think it could be. What we think it should be. Maybe that truth makes us uneasy. And if it does, let me put your mind at rest. Because we can rest in the knowledge that God, from before creation, to the fall of Jerusalem, to the Roman Empire, to our present, to our future, God has us in mind. God never forgets his promises. God never stops loving. God can't stop loving. He is love. The God who humbled himself so much as to become a baby, just so he could be in relationship with us, is the same today as he was then, as he will be for eternity, as he has been for eternity. Our hope is found in the promises of this passage, the same promise that was given to the Israelites. I just want to read a couple of them again, because they're so beautiful. Verses 3 to 5. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, verse 9 to 12. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? I don't know exactly what these promises being worked out look like this Christmas. I don't know what it's going to look like in your world. I suspect you don't know either. But we can answer those final questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? It was a baby. It was the shepherd. It is the good king. This Christmas, let us not look for God on our terms. Let us not look for love on our terms. Let let Advent remind us, love is surprising. Our God is surprising. But the shepherd and the baby, they are good. King Jesus keeps his promises. King Jesus listens. King Jesus loves. And this Advent, may that be our source of hope, our source of joy, our source of peace, that the word became flesh, that love came to us in a manger. Let's pray together. King Jesus, you are good. Your promises are eternal. King Jesus, you are love. Lord, we are sorry for the times we try to impose ourselves on you, impose our will on you. Lord, may we rest in your promises. Rest in the promise that your people, your creation, our relationship with you will one day be fully restored. May we live as followers of the Good Shepherd. May we see the love in the Incarnation, see the love of a baby in a manger, see the love of a God who came to his people. This Christmas, whether we are downcast or excited, concerned or joyous. May our hope be in you, who we be followers of your love, living in light of your love. May we be reminded that the baby is the good king. Amen.